Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. favorite guests curtis harris of prolips history curtis welcome back to the show yep oh it's great to be here jason and uh you you uh i think you joked on twitter that people only invite you to uh things whenever <laughs> there's a, a sad occasion and, and you know we, we've had you here on happy occasions as well but it is unfortunately another uh sad occasion as the uh the, the great connie hawkins uh he uh died a few days ago and um you know, he's a guy where definitely you want to bring in uh, someone who is uh, well versed in basketball history to uh, share some insight on uh, on you know, what made him so remarkable and so special. And uh, you know, obviously, I think the um, the guys that came along later that he was often compared to are someone like Julius Irving and Michael Jordan, just in terms of you know combine, combining the the high flying, the aerobatics, the you know the combination of of grace and fury of you know being able to um, dunk effectively and you know make all these awesome moves and also you know being a great playmaker as well, which I think really he stood out even maybe even more than than uh, Irving and Jordan did. You know what are some of the things that stand out to you in terms of um hawkins in terms of you know legacy and or style well first off i like to say that other podcasts only invite me on when people die you guys invite me whenever if something interesting happens uh, but with connie hawkins uh, i would say that he was definitely one of the first uh, um offensive high flyers in how he played uh because other guys like Bill Russell had, you know, made the game, uh, you know, aerial in terms of defense. Uh, but another guy, another guy like Elgin Baylor, uh, he wasn't quite vertical. He was more like horizontal as to how he elevated the game because uh, he didn't really dunk a lot. He would do more of the, uh, you know, double clutches and hang time stuff and kind of gliding toward the basket. Uh, but Connie Hawkins was definitely one of the first guys uh, that, Really did, you know, take off and fly in for a dunk. Uh, he had the enormous hands. And that's where the Julius Irving comparisons are really, um, really apt because, I mean, he just had enormous hands. Like I posted a um, good guy. I always forget the right pronunciation. Uh, Gif or Jif, whatever the hell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I posted an image on Twitter of him just like, you know, swinging the ball around with his giant hand. It's like a baseball in his hand because his hands are so huge. Um, and just faking people out that way. And I would say for anybody, who hasn't seen any of his any of his highlights? This is still a dated reference, but if you've seen Dr. J and George Gervin, I would say Connie Hawkins' offensive style was a combination of those two because he did have the big dunks, uh, but also had a lot of good finger rolls as well. And if I if I remember right, I think George Gervin gave an interview one time where he said, you know, the guy that inspired him with the finger roll was uh, Wilt Chamberlain and Connie Hawkins because Wilt had to kind of like the not quite the same kind of finger roll, but he had like the huge hands. He kind of just flip it and he kind of do the big twist. But uh, Connie Hawkins had the aerial, you know, moving between players and swinging the ball around to do the little flip. Uh, so I say that'd probably be his 
most um, his most obvious contribution to how basketball was played it was just the aerial, uh, the acrobatic, the dunks, the 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 way he would palm the basketball. Because I've never seen anybody except for Wilt Chamberlain, but Wilt was just like you know seven feet one and so enormous in every way. Uh, but besides Wilt, I think Connie Hawkins was the first player to really palm the basketball in that way um and just just yeah just move the ball around that kind of fashion so that the duncan the finger rolls those are his biggest contributions uh they're pretty obvious yeah i mean his ability to be able to hold on to the ball and like swing around and do those really cool ball fakes and you know whether he, you know, he's dumping it off or about to make a move or whatever yeah yeah no it reminded me uh just remembered it reminds me of uh trace mcgrady the way he would kind of palm the basketball and swing it around like that so i guess that's a more modern comparison um how t-mac used to kind of hold it and uh, move the ball around to swing it around and then, you know, dump it off to a player who's cutting or then, you know, make his, his own offensive move off the dribble. Connie Hawkins would do stuff like that too. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's hard because yeah, that there are so many different, I mean, you know, first of all, our, our footage of Hawkins is limited, but there's some good stuff out there. There's been some stuff that's been shared in the last couple of days. Of course, you know, Will Chamberlain archive has always has good stuff and there's, you know, uh, the NBA and they have, they have some highlights packages. So you, you definitely get a sense of it, but um, yeah, obviously the major theme of um, Hawkins's career is he was unjustly, you know, banned from the NBA for a you know, very tenuous connection to a um, a gambling scandal that he really had nothing uh, involved in. We'll get into the details of that in a little bit, but um, you know, that basically took him out of organized at least the NBA for you know, until he was in his late twenties, and you know, did a little bit of had a couple years in the ABA. Once that came to fruition, also was involved in another league called the ABL, which we'll get into a little bit. But the the main highlights in terms of accomplishments of his career he was actually the mvp in two leagues the uh, aforementioned abl and aba and was four times first team in, in various leagues including the nba's first season there uh led the pittsburgh pipers to the um ABA championship in the league's first season. He also had stints with the um, Harlem Globetrotters for several years and was a uh, a, a playground legend, legend in New York City, including, of course, uh, New York's famous Rucker Park. Yeah, no, I think that's kind of the, the overview that people should know. Uh, also, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to it in a little bit, but, you know, his high school playing days, too. Uh, so that, not just a pickup ball, but uh, there's a great article, which I remember the guy who wrote it, uh, but there's a great article that was written about uh, the high school basketball game that he and uh, Roger Brown had against each other uh, and just the hype that was built up around that. So he was a huge, uh, one of the most highly recruited uh, high school basketball players uh, back at that time, too. So uh, pe people knew about him. Uh, he was one of the big time recruits back in the early 60s at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he was uh, repeatedly could dunk a basketball at the age of 11 and, uh, you know, was already you know pretty famous on the uh, playgrounds in his uh, teen years. He he, he grew up in the um, – I'm going to butcher the pronunciation probably, but the Bedford um, – Stuyvesant. Yeah, Stuyvesant. Okay. I think Stuyvesant is how it's pronounced. Gotcha. Yeah. In, in Brooklyn and was came from a very poor family. His, his mother was blind, and he was one of, I think, five of uh, brothers, and uh, I think they were all brothers. And um, – you know, was, was, you had a rough, you know, a bit of a rough upbringing. Uh, you didn't do necessarily well in school. Later on, he would, uh, uh, you know, would, would work hard and had some help with tutors and would, you know, be able to get kind of his reading up, but it was, it was really, he really struggled academically there. But in basketball, he was very, extremely successful at, at Boys High School, as you talked about, um, there, there was a uh, Madison Square Garden playoff showdown with uh, Roger Brown, who, of course, would also uh, be a great ABA star, would also be blackballed unfairly by gambling scandals. So it, it really interesting parallels between them, but uh, had a fantastic duel. Actually, Hawkins was 
only had 18 points and 13 rebounds fouling out in the third quarter. Roger Brown scored 39, but it was actually um, the boys high school uh, team that won there and they were able to win their second uh, consecutive um, PSAL uh, championship, although they lost in the finals of the city uh, high school uh, championships there. But um yeah, as a junior and as a senior, he was, you know, uh, incredibly uh, successful in his school and before then was, you know, was well known, uh, you know, throughout the you know, playgrounds and, and so forth. And obviously in, in school was uh, still a successful uh, playground player, but um, and then was, you know, uh, was heavily recruited, as you mentioned, ended up going to the uh, University of Iowa and playing on the uh, freshman team there and was uh, uh the University of Iowa, it was a pretty successful program there. They had Don Nelson, but the freshman team with Connie Wood routinely beat the uh, the regular team, which had you know, Don Nelson and others. So they were, uh, he was already successful there. But uh, it was there where he got uh, linked to a gambler named uh, Jack Molinas, who had been a former NBA star who had been um, banned from the NBA after uh, extensively um uh, found to be really, really deeply involved in a betting, and there's a, a really good book called The Wizard of Odds um, that details all of this, and there's lots of articles about it too. But Jack Malice was quite a uh, uh, there, there. There was quite a huge scandal that he was uh, linked to, along with a lot of other people in the early '50s in college basketball, which really did a lot of damage to New York uh, and college basketball throughout the uh, country, and then. Uh, in the early 60s, again, Molinas was one. It was a lawyer at the time, and he was uh, involved in another one, which he later got involved in prison. Um, a lot of people who were you know, involved in gambling and not involved in gambling got trapped in it, including Hawkins, who really – only thing that he did was um, – was borrow about $200 from uh, Molinas and was not involved in any gambling or anything like that. Now he, you know, there, there were other NCAA things involving, you know, he, he took some money and things like that. That was common at the time. And honestly is pretty common today as we've seen, but did, did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, very, it, very, very common. Current yeah. indictments. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. We, we both could rail on about the hypocrisy of the NCAA system and so forth, but is there anything that you want to add about kind of the context of, uh, you know what was going on in term in terms of that scandal in the uh, early '60s. Yeah, I, I think uh, like Connie Hawkins uh, is really one of the most important players or people to really study if you want to know what basketball and its whole history is. Because um, we've already discussed his kind of stylistic impact on basketball, but uh, he also his career, uh, what he went through in his life, revealed some of the, I, I guess, some of the. The shittiness that goes along with a you know a system where things could be made off of it. So um, you know, starting with Jack Molinas, you know, back in the late '40s, early '50s, there's several uh, gambling, uh, just uh, corruption scandals that happened in the NCAA, and then it came into the NBA. So basketball really had kind of a black eye coming off of that. Um, again, you know, it began in the NCAA, but it reached into the NBA. So you had guys like Molinas, uh, Alex Groza, Ralph Beer, they're all banned uh, for various connections with gambling. And I think that's why the NBA really, I mean, I think they went overboard with those guys, it, except for Molinas. Molinas probably did deserve to get banned for life because he actually was gambling on games in yeah. the NBA while he was playing in the NBA. Right. But Alex Groza and Ralph Beer, they were kind of pushed aside, I think, but unjustly. Uh, they deserved a suspension, but not like a lifelong ban. Uh but the NBA is still reeling off of that. You know, it's only not about a decade later when, uh, you know, Connie Hawkins and Roger Brown and Doug Moe um, and other guys kind of get caught up in the Jack Molinas web. You know, anything related with Molinas was just like the NBA didn't want anything to do with it because of the, the perception that would kind of bring up again. 
no matter how flimsy the evidence, no matter how tenuous the connections were. Um, and so, yeah, the ABA just had like a fear at that point. Uh, they want to be, you know, kind of on the level, on the up and up, no more corruption, no more gambling. So Hawkins, Brown, Doug Moe, they, they suffered because of that. If the NBA had, I know this is some like a weird what if, but like, you know, if they had did not have the Jack Molina's problem and Connie Hawkins and the other guys might have had a similar situation go down, they maybe I might have looked the other way, just be like, whatever, you know, like we'll just keep it hush like we do, like we keep it hush with the NCAA money that they were getting all the time. Uh, but that bigger context is needed because you kind of realize in the, from the bigger scope that the NBA was, again, you know, just only a decade old at that point. So they were really afraid, like, you know, this we might not be permanent. You know, there have been plenty of basketball leagues that have been around for only a decade and they they fold. So uh, the NBA wanted to keep it running. So, you know, Hawkins was a, a sacrifice to keep the league running. Um, so yeah, I guess that's what I would add at that point uh, with, as to what Hawkins reveals about that and then how it took him. Uh, almost a day to get into the NBA. So we talked about the ABL, the ABA, but he also filed a lawsuit eventually, I think like maybe 66 yeah. or 67 against the NBA. And then he got it settled by 1969. Uh, so he also shows you kind of the, the just the, the strength eventually the players decided to take up against the NBA, the revolt basically they had on a number of areas. So Hawkins was just one, another, another example of the guys that were pushing back um, you know, the famous 64 All-Star Game strike, and then they threatened to strike, I think, the 68 playoffs. Uh, so he was just another example of the players, you know, finally rising up against the owners, you know, and realizing they're being treated, treated unfairly in a number of ways. So his story really just encapsulates a lot of the important things that were happening at that point in the NBA and in basketball overall. Yeah, I mean, that, that's absolutely, uh, that's well said. And, um, you know, he, you can understand the NBA's point of view to a, a certain extent of, like, you know, there is some fear of that gambling could bring the whole thing down. I mean, it was really, really damaging in the NCAA in the early 50s. Um, you, the, the uh, Other than Molinas, really, in the NBA, there wasn't a, a huge effect, be, you know, because the league, no one really cared about the NBA when that happened. And um, it, you relatively, it was, what was going on there was relatively minor compared to the NCAA scandal. So they, they kind of got away out of that. Um, and so... I can see from their point of view why it would they, they would be punitive of any kind of kind of connection at all would they would want to you know do but obviously you know Hawkins you know again um, later demonstrated that he basically had you know nothing to do with that and yeah I mean it's really looking at the details of you know what actually happened there you know he's at he's at Iowa and then suddenly there are detectives who come in. Um, you know, this is 1960 and, uh, or I'm sorry, this is 61. And then, um, he basically is taken back to New York and he's gone for two weeks and he's basically like held without being charged there for like two weeks and basically like forced to eventually, um, uh, just confess, uh, or well, basically make a false confession of you know telling them what they wanted to hear. I mean, at that point, you know he he was never charged, but at that point, you know he was. Uh, I don't know if he was formally expelled from Iowa, or if he just was just basically basically not invited back. But either way, he was. Oh yeah, however they formulated, he was not going back to university. And, uh, and yeah, I'm glad you brought up the the police questioning because you know that you know, I guess a whole other subject you know about how. Uh, you know, a, a poor black person from New York is treated by the police back then. You know, you just hold up for two weeks and uh, you, you get no representation from counsel. Uh, then the police are just questioning you. And like, uh, like I think he said up to eight hours a day, the police were trying to question him. So like anybody 
uh, you being interrogated for the hour, eight hours straight, you'll start saying funny stuff or just confessing to stuff. Just have the stuff. You'll just have the interrogation stop. So right. Uh, like yeah, that 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 would never hold up in court. That's why I never went to court. So uh, but the damage with him was done. He didn't need to go to court to have the damage done. So uh, yeah, his career got ruined by that. Yeah. So he you know he, he couldn't go back to any you know another university was going to take him and the NBA oh. basically, basically let it be known that he wasn't officially banned until '66. But they basically said like yeah, we're not going to approve any contract for him to to come in. So. Um, Fortunately for Hawkins, uh, a a new league called the uh, American Basketball League uh, formed the uh, next year. Uh, it was formed by the uh, Abe Saperstein, who was the Harlem Globetrotters owner. Apparently, been promised an NBA franchise, and that didn't come to fruition. So he uh, started a, a rival league, you know, with, with some of the other leagues that were you know, smaller leagues that were going on in the time and in industrial leagues and so forth, where there was still you know some some pretty high level basketball going on, and they were able to you know form a pretty competitive. Competitively, they had a few notable, you know, NBA players such as uh, Dick Barnett, Kenny Sears, uh, Larry Siegfried, Bill Bridges, Nat Clifton, and uh, George Yardley, who had been one of the first, uh, you know, really big scorers for the NBA in the um, mid to late 50s. George Steinbrenner was one of the owners of the uh, franchise, which had a, a team in Cleveland. Um, probably best known today for the really the first professional league having a three-pointer and also having a wider foul line that the NBA soon uh, adopted. And... Um, uh, there's an interesting story about the uh, the Rens, uh, Pittsburgh Wrens owner uh, Lenny Littman, who would be uh, the Littman family would be important in Hawkins' life uh, going forward. But he basically showed up. He was a, a Pittsburgh concert and entertainment promoter, and he showed up at Hawkins' home unannounced and had a contract, and then uh, and then brought him uh, into the uh, league. And he was really dominant at first. And, and in fact, they uh, other. ABL owners like thought you know wanted to try to get him barred because of the gambling connection said that he his signing violated league rules also because you know his college class had not yet graduated but then they ended up coming up uh he, he was ruled eligible by uh, Saperstein who was in charge and uh you know, ended up being the MVP of the league that year at only age uh 19. Yeah, yeah, this, you know, this teases out another angle on, again, like, you know, you study Connie Hawkins, you pretty get a pretty good idea of basketball history uh, this era. Like, yeah, he's still the the ABL, upstart, rival to the NBA, and how Abe Saperstein thought he was screwed by the NBA. You know, he was apparently promised a franchise in Chicago, or actually, no, it was uh, Los Angeles. Los Angeles, yeah. Uh, but they didn't, yeah, but then the Lakers, you know, beat him to the punch. So he was like, screw this, I'm a form my own league. And, uh, yeah, they start. That's the first uh, cracks in the dam, I guess you can say, for the control that the NBA had over the players. So a guy like Connie Hawkins could, you know, like you said, at 19 years of age, uh, wait till his college class graduated, go into pro league, and you know, be the MVP, win the championship. I think he averaged 28 points. Uh, but also, as you said, you know, he had guys like Dick Barnett, um, George Yardley, these other guys who have been all stars, so would be all stars in the NBA. So there's some definitely some talent in there. And uh, the other one, other guy you mentioned, uh, Kenny Sears, uh, him and Dick Barnett, they had lawsuits with the NBA about whether or not they could join the ABL. So you kind of have the the precursor of the ABA stuff, you know, seven years before all that happened. Uh, so that's just a really interesting league. And Connie Hawkins was the dominant player in the league. Uh, unfortunately, only lasted one season. Uh, so you, you wish he could have kept going, and he could have, you know played in a, in a actual professional league for a good while uh and people really would have had more of a more of an idea as to how good he was but the league folded the next year and uh not even make it 63 i think they folded in all the 62 and he had to join the globetrotters so yeah 
Yeah, I mean, he he felt fortunate that at least you know there, he was able to join the Globetrotters there, and it, I guess was there from like '63 to '67. Uh, I, I I couldn't find a whole lot on his time with oh. the uh, Globetrotters. Um, uh, you know, if, if there's much interesting there, obviously the Globetrotters are uh, there's an interesting story, you know, w- with them and and what they were doing at the time. But um, I you know, obviously would have been uh, better for him to be you know among the best competition in the world rather than you know doing what the Globetrotters were um, doing. I, you know, yeah, by the mid sixties, they, you know, they, they still had some talented players. Yeah. They were definitely more of the, more on the joke side, less on the, the competitive basketball side at that point. Yeah. And, and you know, back in the forties and fifties, I mean, the, the, the showmanship aspect was always a part of the Globetrotters, but they were generally playing, you know, against high level competition and in a uh, serious games. I, I'm not exactly sure at what point it really transitioned to the, um, uh, you know, to, to, to more of the antics, I, pro- probably as the NBA, you know, kind of established itself more and there was an actual professional basketball league and they were, you know, they're, they're, and there was, um, and there was African-American talent that was going into that league that probably obviously that, that sort of changed the, the game for the uh, Globetrotters. Uh, so, um, he was, uh, his class was eligible in the, uh, 64 cl- uh, draft. He, no team selected him. He also went undrafted in 65. It, it, it was funny that the NBA actually claimed that, uh, each team had decided that unilaterally didn't want him rather than it being, uh, you know, some sort of conspiracy against him. Um, eventually what after, a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, eventually after <laughs> six, 66, he was voted by the board of governors to uh, be barred, which actually, uh, led to, uh, the lawsuit that you, um, uh, alluded to, uh, um, earlier, which was a, um, it was actually filed um, by uh, the Littman family. It was Pittsburgh attorneys uh, Dave and Roz Littman, who were friends of his. Uh, the, the, I'm not sure of the exact relation to the owner of the um, uh, of the uh, the Rens franchise, but anyway, they they filed a six million dollar antitrust suit there, um, and uh, eventually was able to uh, was awarded a. Uh, a $1.3 million settlement and had a contract with the, uh, with the Suns. So it, it was, uh, ended up being successful to that. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of get into that in a little bit, but before that, um, happened, he, uh, joined a, uh, another fledgling league league called, called the, uh, ABA and, uh, had quite a bit of success there. So, uh, you know, they, they, it's kind of the, it's not officially, but in essence, it's kind of like the reincarnation of the ABL, uh, you know, the, another upstart league trying to challenge the NBA and uh, obviously more successful than the ABL. Uh, but it's I, I'm just really glad that the ABA came around because they gave the guys like Hawkins and Roger Brown and Doug Moe and uh, just, just other players like uh, Freddie Lewis um, and Larry Jones. These other guys, that, you know, just didn't make an NBA roster for whatever reason, but they were really, really good players. So they were able to actually uh, show what they could do in the ABA. Uh, but Dan Ian Hawkins was the dominant player, and he, at this point he was 27 years old. So, you know, we're we're, talk, we're now talking like almost a decade at this point where he got you know kicked out of Iowa at 19 years of age. Now he's 27 years old in the Guinea ABA, and uh, he just absolutely dominates the league. I think he averaged 28 points again, like he did in the ABL. Um, and again, takes a Pittsburgh team all the way to the finals, and they won a really tough uh, seven-game series over New- the New Orleans Buccaneers that had Doug Moe and Larry Brown. That's <laughs> like the backcourt. This is, uh, or Doug Moe played forward, but uh, Larry Brown played play point guard. And like it, it's just fantastic to kind of look back at that, like, knowing where all these guys kind of went to later on and just thinking about them playing against Connie Hawkins and just a tremendous series he had. And uh, looking at his stats, it shows you his all-around game that we are talking about. 
It was 27 points, 13 rebounds, and four and a half assists per game. Uh, and so he wasn't just a scorer. He was a really good passer uh, and also with the jumping ability, a really good uh, rebounder at that point. So it's, uh, it's just really – it's just like I said, it's just really good that he got that chance like the guy did to finally show what they could do in a real professional league, even though this was just getting started at that point. Uh, that kind of gave him the platform, I think. It uh, kind of forced the NBA's hand. where The court decision was going to be the way it was. But I, I think it kind of expedited things where the NBA owners could see, like, all right, we have this from this other league, and they could actually see what Hawkins was able to do. So it really wasn't any sense in fighting this trial. So they were probably going to lose at the end of the day. So that's why they settled uh, by 69 and just let Hawkins join the NBA. So uh, it was good for the NBA, uh, good for Hawkins, and uh, helped force his way into the NBA uh, by getting that chance in the NBA. So yeah, um, you know, yeah, Hawkins. You, you mentioned his numbers in that first year, but yeah, he led the league in scoring, was second in the league in rebounding, and third in assists per game. So uh, really, all across the board was you know doing everything that uh, you'd want him to do. Yeah, he had seventeen point nine win shares that year, and the second in the league was Larry Jones of Denver with eleven point eight. So uh, that's a pretty huge disparity there. Yeah, and the interesting thing about him is that you know his teammates. Uh, a lot of them talked about how um, unselfish he was. Like he didn't even lead the team in uh, in shots that year. I, I think the, the guards uh, there, Chico Vaughn and uh, Charlie Williams, actually took more shots than um, he did, which is kind of amazing. Now both of them were shooting a lot of threes that year. They were one of the first teams to really embrace the three, but that's pretty impressive right there. And says something about you know Hawkins's game. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say Chico Vaughn. Yeah, he 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 was launching three pointers. So. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to remember if he played. I don't think he did. I'm trying to remember the guy. It's not the time for it. But this, there was one guy in the ABL guy who was chucking up a whole bunch of three pointers. Wish I could remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, but yeah, no, no, no. You, like you read the quotes from the, from his teammates in uh, Pittsburgh. They would say like, yeah, Connie could average. Uh, you know, over 30, maybe 40, uh, I, and then you start to embellish, like maybe 50 points a game. It was like, all right, we, we don't need to go that far. But <laughs> no. um, but he, he could have averaged more than 27 points. But, yeah, they were like, but he, he was a team player. He wanted other guys to be involved. Um, and they said he was a good help defender as well, which, you know, you know, given his frame, like he's a 6'8", with those long arms and big hands. Like he would be, a, you know, the – the prototypical help defender, you know, trap a guy, get into a passing lane. So, uh, yeah, he, he was more just off the a score. He was a really good passer, rebounder, good help defender, uh, and also a great teammate, according to those guys who were with Pittsburgh. So, yeah, it was really good to read their stories. Uh, loose balls, as usual, has to good info on the ABA stuff. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, and um... – yeah, the second year for the Pipers, you know, they ended up leaving for Minnesota for inexplicable, inexplicable reasons. Um, yeah, I, that's yes, so um, I it, the reputedly is because George Mikan, uh, who was the ABA president and was headquarter in um, Minnesota, wanted to have a team there after the first team left. But either way, it was a. Uh, not a great decision. They uh, they sort of failed there and moved back to uh, Pittsburgh. Um, but it, this at this point, it was without um, Hawkins, who, as you talked about, the um, there was a settlement of his lawsuit. Uh, you know, one of the, the the big things that was the impetus for this is there was a um, a, a Life magazine um, story uh, that was. Um, 
that was written by David Wolf, who would later turn that story into the uh, the book Foul, that would you know talk about you know the injustices that were done against him in the case and all that all that good stuff, and that sort of brought public opinion on um, Connie Hawkins' side. That was it got a lot of attention during that time, and that kind of uh, paved the way for as you mentioned the lawsuit to be uh, settled and. Uh, and he would eventually uh, – Phoenix would get his rights based on a secret coin flip uh, that they uh, won against uh, the Seattle uh, Supersonics. So uh, the, um, the, the, the Sons of – See, Reese... I never do that. I yeah. never do that. I was always wondering how to, I was always wondering how the Suns got his rights. It's like they never drafted them. Yeah. All right, secret coin flips. All right. Yeah, there you know. go. It wasn't just the ABA was doing the secret coin flips. It was the uh, <laughs> NBA was involved as well. Yeah, because the of course Phoenix had famously lost the uh, coin flip to the Bucks for um for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So yep. yeah, so so you know they they got what I mean. Connie Hawkins is not a, a bad a consolation prize. Yeah, uh, at that point, and I got I got I got ages mixed up. Uh, when he joined the ABA, he was twenty five. When he joined the NBA, he was twenty seven. So I got a little ahead of myself. Uh few minutes ago yeah uh but yeah unfortunately by that point uh he did have a that knee injury uh in his second season in the aba so uh yeah but they were the minnesota piper the second year of the aba he had a knee injury so um unfortunately that I mean, he's already like getting into his late 20s so like your athleticism is already declining but that knee injury you, you, you still got good Kenny hawkins in the aba but it wasn't quite you know the 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 full force and freak of nature that he was back in the ABA and ABL yeah. at that point. Yeah, that first year he still, you know, was probably like a top ten player in the league. In fact, he was he was all NBA first team, but um, and he was still good for a few years. But it was clearly, yeah, the 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 knee injury, you know, all those years playing in you know on subpar courts and you know the the, the travel. I'm, I'm sure that was rough. Um, you know, with the Globe Trotters and with um you know, playgrounds and all, and all that stuff was probably, you know, adding up for, um, him, but yeah, I mean, people, um, talked about, um, you know, when he, when he first got there about how, you know, Jerry Colangelo, who was the son's GM at the time, I think was actually coached for a little while as well. Um, he said, you know, that really Hawkins was there, you know, putting them on the map and, um, you know, the guys he was playing against, like, um, you know, um, uh, Dave DeBusher and Billy Cunningham were, you know, like wowing, you know, how, you know, great he was playing. You know, Billy Cunningham had actually played against him in, uh, in you know, back in the days in New York during the, you know, they were um, similar ages, you know, uh, playing there in uh, in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, DeBusher was talking about how, you know, he handled the ball like it was a, uh, a baseball. And uh, Bill Russell picked a all-time, um, all-pro team, and uh, Hawkins was on his second five. And then he said um, – he said, you know, if he hadn't gotten such a bad deal, you would mention Hawkins with Baylor and Pettit. So say, seeing his talent on that same level, but obviously not quite having the same uh, ability to uh, display it. But yeah, that, that that first year, he was sixth in the league in scoring. Uh, he was like top 10 in PER and win shares, and he led the uh, Suns to a 23-game improvement over the uh, previous year in their first playoff spot and only their second year in the uh, league. So um, yeah, I mean, I would say that first year was really the uh, standout year Um in his final game of his rookie season, he uh, he had 44 points, 20 rebounds, eight assists, and un- unofficially five blocks and uh, five steals. And um, 
and had you know one of his best games in the uh, in game two of the 1970 playoff series against the uh, Lakers. This was the Chamberlain uh, Russell and um, or excuse me uh, Chamberlain Weston Baylor Lakers, where uh, he had 34 points, 20 rebounds, seven assists, and the Lakers were heavily favored, but the Suns uh, ended up winning game two and uh, going up three one in that series, although they ended up losing it in uh, game seven to the uh, Lakers there. Yeah, that's hilarious. Uh, the Suns were thirty nine and forty three, so they had a losing record, which was it was an improvement, as you said, but they still had a slightly losing record. Uh, it almost beat like the defending Western Conference champion L.A. Lakers. Uh, so, so Connie was still doing the thing uh, his first year in the NBA, but uh, yeah, as we've said, you know the the the, the courts caught up with him. Uh, the knee the knee stuff. So. Uh, the next year, I mean, the Suns are still a really good team. Um, in fact, they're even better the next season. But they, this is the stupidity of the NBA. Um, they had they won 39 games in 1970 and almost beat the Lakers in the playoffs. But then the next year, they won 48 games, but didn't qualify for the playoffs. Yeah, that was still <laughs> yeah. It, it, this is geographical nonsense at the NBA. Uh, right, and that was even worse then because that was the time where they were doing it based on like because they, they just split from divisions and into yeah. into conferences, and so there were four divisions, and it was the top two from each division that made the playoffs. So it wasn't even just based on conference. So they were. Yeah, they were forty-eight and thirty-four that year and did not make the playoffs. And um, uh, but uh, the damn San Francisco Warriors. I'm, I'm looking at it right now the San Francisco Warriors, yeah, forty-one to forty-one. Right, made it. Yeah, exactly. So and, and the Detroit Pistons were forty-five. They're in the West at that time, but yeah. they were forty-five and thirty-seven. So the freaking San Francisco Warriors with forty-one wins right. got in the playoffs over the Detroit Pistons and the Phoenix Suns who had more wins. So right. yes, yeah, the NBA has never had all right has always had issues with playoffs and uh, scheduling. We'll just yeah. put, leave it at that. Yeah. Um, uh, again, yeah, go ahead. It's like, again, the Connie Hawkins story reveals a lot of interesting uh, <laughs> things about basketball history. Yeah. They did get rid of that rule after a little while. It got a little better. I mean, you know, the, the, the there are still obviously issues occasionally, but it the, that was a really egregious, like, what are they thinking kind of, uh, of thing. So, yeah, and, and his numbers did slip a little bit to the next couple of – that second year he did average 21 points uh, per game. He was still pretty – the rebounding was down a bit, but he was still you know pretty efficient scorer um, and such. And that, that, that third year the numbers definitely went down, you know, only 16 points a game at age 30, um, you know. Uh, so that one you – know, that was the year he kind of – fell off a little bit and we started people started to notice that obviously and even though the numbers were you know fairly good you know he came in with this you know a really big reputation obviously of uh you know being this you know, the, the greatest player who had never been in the league and so forth and there was some you know, there were some criticisms from writers and fans and um but I, I thought that uh, Ray Scott the Pistons coach had the had a great quote there of saying you know if Connie Hawkins has slowed down, I wish he'd show it against us. So he could still show some of that, uh, you know, good stuff uh, going on there. But, <laughs> uh, but, but once he left Phoenix um, in '74, he was traded from the uh, Suns to the uh, Lakers. You know, there was a noticeable kind of downgrade there. The Lakers were, you know, okay in '74, even though it was Jerry West's final year. He only played 32 games, but they still had, you know, a fairly decent team there. They won 47 games. They, um, you know, they had Gail Goodrich and. Um, 
Happy Airston, Elmore Smith, you know, some some decent players. So they, uh, but the numbers by then, it was it was like ten point eight points per game, eight rebounds per game. You know, well, I'm, that, I'm sorry, that was in the uh, the playoff series against the Bucks, where um, you know, this is Kareem's uh, Bucks. He is still really still really strong. Oscar Robertson, they oh, would yeah. make, make the finals that year. So that was kind of the last gasp of you know of, of playoff relevance, at least for um, uh, for Hawkins. Yeah, and. I mean, after that, uh, he played, yeah, the rest of that, I mean, that one season with the Lakers, and he had another full year in 75, and then had the the one forgettable year with the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, yeah. But it had, the nice, it had the nice symmetry, you know, Connie Hawkins playing for the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, yeah. And I, I meant to say this earlier. Uh, I don't think any any person has had a, a more perfect last name for how their style of play was. <laughs> like, true. isn't it perfect that his name was Connie Hawkins and he, like, flew around like a hawk on the court? Yes. Um, uh, that that if ever there's proof there's a guy that's that's it but yes. um <laughs> but, uh, yeah and i i believe yeah. you, you i believe you made the uh we and you're right up on connie hawkins on pro hoops history i believe you made the his career rose from the ashes when he went to the phoenix suns so there was a uh, uh that, that, that was i thought that was appropriate as well you know there we go yeah connie has a way he's very very poetic uh his career yes uh yeah but it did but it, it ends in 70s actually again it ends in 76 that's when the aba at the end of that year joins the nba so or you know merges with the nba right uh so there we go that's you know connie hawkins's career um uh, you know high school when he graduated in 1960 so he probably started high school like 1957 so that's a good 57 to 76 just following connie hawkins's uh basketball life you get a pretty good overview as to all the twists and turns and basketball as to what was going on the college gambling the the un- undue suspensions and blackballings, the, the rival leagues, and finally the mergers and the lawsuits. Uh, but the the stylistic and athletic changes in the game, uh, the man's career has a pretty good, you know, bookends and all that. And that their little two decade period. Yeah, I um I, I found it, there's some interesting uh, stories about his personality because it's one thing I hadn't really ever gotten much of a sense of in you know in in looking at you know his his career before of you know kind of what. You know, I'd always kind of thought of him as a little bit of a shy, reserved guy, and he was pretty quiet um, after his career ended. But there's a couple of fun anecdotes that I found um, reading. There's a couple from the Arizona Republic where um, the um, Al McCoy, uh, the um, longtime Suns announcer, noticed that he um, had um, he was missing from the game, and apparently he had. Uh, this was during the time which his autobiography came out in 72 and there was uh he was had a lot of media stuff and was just really exhausted after like a, a long road trip and he was he had fallen asleep in the room of of uh, david wolf the book's author and then he came in uh got there at the arena put his uniform on it was the end of the uh, first quarter and um then um the uh mccoy asked him like hey what's going on where you been and then he uh and then uh, Hawkins turned around and he said, "Look at it this way: if this was baseball and a doubleheader, I'd be early for the second game." So, uh, <laughs> he was a good. Uh, there's another one from uh, Joe Prowski, who was the uh, Suns trainer, and um, said that uh, Hawk is the guy who got me nicknamed Magic Fingers. Uh, one time we were playing on national TV and he fell down near the free throw line. I thought he was really hurt. He was grabbing his knee and grimacing in pain. I ran out and asked him what was wrong. He looks at me and says, just think, all your buddies in Green Bay, which was his, his hometown, are eating their house out because you're on national TV. Then he jumped up, and Hot Rod Hundley, who isn't broadcasting the game, said, oh, my God, he must have magic in his fingers. So uh, 
so there was a lot of a lot of quotes like that of guys who you know showing off kind of his sense of humor and you know it seemed like the, a guy people enjoy being with and and, and hanging out with uh I, I guess the other thing that he's kind of known for outside of basketball of course is that saturday and live uh, sketch with um, yeah paul simon which i i have not been able to uh, find again i know i know i saw it at some point you know um when I was a kid and not like live, obviously like later on, I'm not that old, but yeah, yeah, obviously <laughs> late, yes. later on um, would uh, sometime on a rerun. I, I, I remember seeing that one. So that's, that's a fun one with you playing with uh, Paul Simon on the uh, playground. And um, I, I, I guess the joke of it is like Simon is, you know, beating him obviously, even though it's, you know, Simon against Connie Hawkins. So that was obviously it was, that was toward the end of his career, maybe even slightly after he had retired. Oh yeah. If it's Saturday Night Live. Yeah. It's got to be like this last year or Probably he just retired. But yeah. So. Fair enough. Just a sense of humor. Or, you know, a good, good hawk. Uh, also, I want to add this in. Uh, then, uh, if the listeners out there, if y'all know Andrew Lynch, a basketball writer, uh, he apparently played poker with Johnny Hawkins Ooh. in like 2000, I think 2006. And he was like, I think it was at a casino in Vegas. So they're just like at the same poker table. And that was just, they're like on the TV was Kobe Bryant scoring the 81 points. So, like, uh, if you want to hear more about it, uh, go follow Andrew Lynch at Andrew Lynch on Twitter and ask about Connie Hawkins and poker and Kobe Bryant. Uh, he can tell you about playing poker with, with Connie Hawkins in 2006 when Kobe's dropping 81 points. So, uh, like, that, that, that's the story right there. When, I, when Andrew first told me about that, I was like, yeah, like you, you got to be kidding me. He's like, no, I played poker with Connie Hawkins and Kobe scored 81 points. I was like, all right, you know. Uh some of us have great stories of basketball to tell. Some of us have that story like Andrew Lynch, which is you know, beyond great. That is just, I don't know what it is beyond that. Uh, <laughs> one of the most greatest, one of the greatest games ever played. You said one of the greatest players ever playing poker as the game is happening. So, yeah, that, that is, that's pretty fantastic. Great story, I, I, I had not known that. Yeah. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll ask him about that one. Cause I'm, I'm very curious now about, uh, <laughs> Uh, about that one for sure yeah so yeah yeah there wasn't a, a whole lot on his um he, what he was doing after basketball you know there there's some kind of illusions and some of the articles that he went through some rough times uh, he did play in the first three nba legends uh, old timers games in the 80s um and then in the early 90s um uh jerry colangelo who was uh, still an executive with the suns uh, i think maybe partial owner at that point but anyway he uh Brought um, Hawkins uh, to be a community ambassador for the Suns, which he was doing up until I think fairly recently. You know, he he really started to have some health problems in the uh, late two thousands, and um, but I saw and there was some photo galleries of him stuff at least you know being involved in stuff at least up until like twenty fifteen. So. Um, he, apparently, they, he really enjoyed being a community ambassador for it, and um, and then of course was um, inducted into the uh, Basketball Hall of Fame in um, in 1992. And he talked about how you know when, when he got that news in '91, you know he was uh, you know he he cried and and just thought of like you know something well, how fantastic it was, and it was really a huge feeling for me. And it made me think about that because I mean, like I'm not sure how much the basketball hall of fame means to someone like, you, you know, like Michael Jordan or Julius Irving or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, they, they all seem honored by that induction, but I mean, you know, they are recognized as being, you know, the greatest among the greatest players of all time at that level. And, 
you know, I don't know what it, you know, it would mean to someone in Connie Hawkins' position, who was you know, certainly one of the best ever, but didn't really get a full chance to prove it, only got it to prove it kind of in flashes. There's still a question of, like, okay, is he really one of the, the best 10, 15 ever? Or, you know, where, where does he kind of belong in that hierarchy of, you know, of, of basketball history? So I, I think the Hall of Fame, you know, adds some validation for a guy like that or, you know, or, or a guy who is, you know, you, you, you could also – talk about a guy who's you know, kind of maybe like more of a borderline case even if they had a full career but um you, you for someone like Hawkins I, I think there probably has to be a different feel for you know what that means especially you know getting it so oh. late after you know his career no it 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 definitely means like, I mean this is my interpretation like, like hell I'm not going to basketball hall of fame but uh you know for, for like you said somebody like Kareem or Bill Russell or Michael Jordan uh, like, yeah, you are clearly acknowledged being one of the greatest players ever. There's never any doubt you're going into the Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, and even a guy like, uh, let's see, like, you know, Grant Hill or uh, Trace McGrady, you know, McGrady who beat the Hall of Fame at Grant Hill, who I would say probably it's in there. But even guys like them, like their careers were kind of derailed by injury, whereas someone like Connie Hawkins and uh, Roger Brown, who finally got inducted, um, albeit posthumously, um, for guys like them to get inducted, it, it is more of a validation that they had been, you know, unjustly, unduly denied their their chance to prove like what they fully could have done with their career. Whereas, you know, McGrady, uh, you know, had a chance, injury, you know, it wasn't it, it like you know, that's just like you know, fake, nothing you can do about that. Injuries happen. Whereas with Hawkins, actively and stopped him from being able to do what he was great at and made most of his talent and fully display what he could have done. So I feel like the hall of fame induction was almost like a, an apology and a recognition that they, that he had been done wrong and that, you know, they took that into effect and they know that if he had been able to do what he was fully capable of, there would be no doubt he would have been in the class of, you know, maybe not Michael Jordan, Kareem and Bill Russell, but in a class of whatever hell, think of second tier players like, um, Whatever, George Gervin, just people like that, who you just never doubt are going to be in the Hall of Fame anyways, even as they're playing. Um, so I think that's a lot for him. For people like him, that means a lot. Um, it's just, yeah, it's that validation, but also like that apology that, yes, we had done, done you wrong. Like the authority of basketball had done you wrong. You know, the authorities have stepped in and stopped you from being able to do what you, what, what your greatest talent was. So I think that's why he, it meant the most to him, uh, people like him. So... Um... So one thing we want to talk about, and um, and and Josh at Hoops Plus the Harm asked us this question specifically, and I know we wanted to have some discussion about it, of how would he have altered the NBA's trajectory had he played in his prime? That's a really interesting question to um, think about. So if he'd have been drafted in 1964, um, that would have been his draft class, um, the so he would have either been the territorial or the 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 Knicks who had the first pick outside of the territorial picks. Um, he would have he would have certainly almost certainly gone to the Knicks. They would not have drafted Jim Barnes in the first round, and if they'd have selected Willis Reed in the second round as they as they did that year, you know obviously a Knicks team anchored by Hawkins and Reed is really interesting to think about how they would have uh, progressed from there because obviously they're they're probably well they're certainly a better team right away and how do they you know they obviously build a much different team than the Knicks of the you know um 
early 70s would have been but but they I could see a team based on those two guys obviously having a lot of success probably even a little bit earlier than they did yeah see I I was thinking along your lines but the, at that point the New York Knicks were kind of a little incompetent I think they might have still Jim Barnes number one overall because <laughs> they it was like a five-year stretch they drafted nothing but centers with their first round picks so maybe they would have wisened up and took Connie Hawkins because he was from New York City. But I, I don't know. Like you, you, you can only correct stupid so much. And I think they might have still took Jim Barnes. Not that Jim Barnes was a bad player, but you clearly should have took Connie Hawkins over him. Yeah. I mean, and they took Jim Barnes over Willis Reed. So they got lucky that no one else took Willis Reed and got him in the second round. Uh, so I would hope the Knicks would have took Connie Hawkins. And that would make for a really interesting team, as you said. Uh, but if they didn't take him, like Baltimore, they, they they were sitting there at number three. Uh, they took this man named Gary Brad, who I've never heard of. Uh, he played 44 games in the NBA. Hey, he's in Ohio. He was a small four. Yeah, he played Ohio State. You know, I'm yeah, I'm sure, sure he was great. Yeah, I'm sure he was, but he played small four. Yeah. I feel like the Baltimore Bullets, but they're looking for a small four. They probably would have took Connie Hawkins at that point. So yeah. like, throw him in with uh with Gus Johnson and all those guys up there. That would have been an interesting team too. So. Basically, well, the, the bottom line is whoever would have took it would have had a hell of a team. Uh, they got a whole lot better. Uh, NBA would have been a lot more exciting. And um, along with the company, Hawkins, like I keep mentioning him, like he's in lockstep because he got a lot of paying crap. Uh, but Roger Brown, he would have been a territorial pick, no doubt about it, of the Cincinnati Royals. Oh, yeah. And it's like a man, and like Oscar Robertson knew Roger Brown. So I'm sure Oscar would have told Cincinnati, y'all better take Roger Brown uh, in this draft. And, like, imagine a freaking backcourt of Oscar Robertson and Roger Brown in Cincinnati with uh, Jerry Lewis and uh, uh, Wayne Embry and all those other guys. Like, that team, they might beat Boston in the Eastern Conference if they had that together. Well, they were still in the West. That's a problem. Um, but they would definitely, I guess. Um, but, no, Cincinnati would have been a title contender. And then, you know, depending on who got Connie Hawkins, uh, the Knicks probably would have been so, but the Bullets – yeah. Uh, they might have been able to get to the level uh, a little more iffy with Connie because it depends on who who took him. But they could have been a really a contender. I could get the dark horse contender at that point. Yeah, I'm looking at. I'm mean, obviously Joe Carbo was really good, but looking at whether the Pistons would have taken. Um would have taken Hawkins instead of uh, Caldwell. Now, they, I guess they had the Busher. Well, yeah, I guess Connie was more of a small forward. So they, so with the Busher and Connie and uh, uh, Terry Dissinger there, I mean, that's that's it. Ray Scott too. That's an interesting uh, team. I mean, and that's um, you know the Pistons were pretty much. I mean, they were really you know either mediocre or bad pretty much from the late 50s through the mid 80s so um you know up until the first year they kind of got good with Isaiah and Lambeer and those guys so i um it'd be interesting if they would have had a little well, hey, less hey, hey, there. hey 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 yeah i'm sorry did all i all right, all right. let's not disparage or that, that you disparage Dave, Dave Bing and Bob Deere. They had like three years of success. Well, uh, okay. I mean, they were like 45 <laughs> win team. I mean, yeah. I mean, they were great players, but that was not, you know. Let, let, let's just, let's not forget that they, they got, that they did have a couple of good years. Okay. But yeah. overall, you're correct. They did suck from yeah. like 59 to 85. Yeah. But right. It, it, the three glorious years, Bob Ladeer and Dave Bing got about the gutter. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah that that being that's a fair point you know it's it's like uh, yeah that's it, it, that's a fair point yeah they uh they got screwed out of that that whole seeding thing that we talked about they they got screwed out of the seeding issue one year for the, where they should have made the playoffs with a lot of wins and they didn't so so we'll uh we'll you know i i, I take back i walk back a little bit of what i said <laughs> <laughs>
That's walking back. I sorry, I, I stick up for Dave being a bobbledeer. Yeah, uh, religiously, well, I, as so. you should. That's it's fair. It's it's not unfair. They they were they were wonderful. So um, yeah. You know what would have been interesting? Let's say because uh, I feel like the Knicks still would have been stupid. Okay. And the Pistons still would have took Joe Caldwell because like Caldwell's a really good player and he right. he fit the beat they had. So they could have yeah. took Hawkins or Joe Caldwell. And if Baltimore was still stupid, it was like no, nah, Gary Bratz is small for what we need. Yeah. Sitting at number four were the Philadelphia 76ers. They took Luke Jackson. Yeah. Because they were looking for a center. So they probably would have stuck with him because mm-hmm. they didn't have Will Chamberlain yet. They traded for him midway that next season. Right. But then the St. Louis Hawks, they took Jeff Mullins, who was a shooting guard small forward. That would have been interesting. They had gotten uh, Connie Hawkins in St. Louis because he, if he would have graduated from Iowa, I feel like St. Louis would be like, all right, that's a kid from Iowa. Uh, we could take him and add him into our front line that had uh, Zelmo Beatty and Bill Bridges and also Paul Silas coming off the bench. So, like, that that'd be a, that would have been a hell of a front court to have Bill Bridges, Zelmo Beatty, Connie Hawkins, and uh, Paul Silas out there. Yeah, I, that that's that's an excellent point. That would that would have been really interesting. Um, uh, yeah, that's I, I, I hard. I mean, those teams were really good. You know, they, they were, like, you know, 45 to 50 win teams. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they took the Lakers to, uh, you know, a couple of tough uh, playoff series in the uh, late uh, 60s. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's that is an interesting you know, uh, team right there. Yeah. I'm uh, with them. You know, the team I hope that it got Connie Hawkins, I'm going to St. Louis Hawks because they had that badass front court. Yeah. And also, as I said earlier, you would have had Hawkins with the Hawks. So I feel like that was a great marketing tool, too. They would have yeah. done it for that reason. Yeah. Uh, so that's, it, that, that's the perfect team that should have got him in 1964, the St. Louis Hawks. Right. Plus, you would have had Pettit and Hawkins together for one season, at least, you know, before Pettit retires. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That was his last year, so they still would have had Pettit for that last season. Yeah. So that'd been oh, fun. Shit. That was a, that'd been the most stocked ass uh front court ever. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> like three three Hall of Famers and then two more multiple multiple time all stars with Paul Silas and Bill Bridges. So Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jesus. That's a heck of a team. Yeah. Um yeah, they, right. they had they had Chico Vaughn there too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Chico. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and feature of course as you mentioned Paul Silas, a feature uh, teammate with uh, uh, with Hawkins on the uh, on the Suns. So uh, right. a lot of connections that he would have later. Yeah, that's a team that should have got him. Yeah, Damn. yeah, and Bill, and Bill Bridges, of course, he played with him with the uh, Lakers. So a uh, lot, lot of lot of feature teammates uh, on that uh, team there. Well, so. well, you know what? Actually, last last little thing about the drafting. Uh, you know how the world works and who were, who really would have got him? Uh, probably Boston would have gotten him. <laughs> yeah, Boston Celtics would have got him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's just the way it would have worked back right. in the 60s. Air, Air would have been too stupid. And yeah. Yeah, Red Ox back be like, well, yeah, so what? He took a little money on the side. Eh, he can play the bit small for it. Let's bring him in. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, they're they're great up until like seventy five now. You know, or well, I guess they were they were, they won the championship seventy four, so they were good then. Yeah, but that like uh like Hawkins keeps them like awesome for like another you know five years after Russell retires. I'm sure that that that, that that's probably the universe that would have happened. Yeah, they would have won it. They probably would have. Man, they probably would have beat Philly in sixty seven. Yeah, there then, you go. Right. He said a fight to the death. Um, right. Yeah. Then in 70, 71, 72, wouldn't have been no rebuild. They just have Connie Hawkins still there. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Hawkins and Havlicek. That's uh, yeah, it's not, not too bad of a foundation to break. And the probably would have no, no. played really well together too. Yeah. Well, there you go. So, uh, so anything else we should talk about with uh with uh, Connie Hawkins before we go? Uh, no. I I think we 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 got everything. Yeah. Uh, I'll say I've 
I wish I would have been able to talk to him at one point. Seemed like he, I'm glad he wrote an autobiography. That's one thing I will say. I'm, gl- I'm glad he wrote an autobiography in that era, like in early 70s. So we really kind of were able to capture how he felt at that time. So we'll always have that. Um, yeah, but it's, it's always just, you know, always sucks when these guys pass away. Like, you know, that's, you're not going to get any more time to sit down and talk to those guys. Um, but, I, but I think we've hit on uh, everything, his influence and everything he did for basketball. Uh, I think we got all of it. Well, um, Curtis, thank you uh, so much. Always a pleasure to uh, have you on the show and always fun to uh, talk about uh, basketball history. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure we have something silly for you to uh, get into uh, next time. So we'll, uh, we'll keep it a little bit less uh, of a, on a serious note. But uh, so thanks a lot. So I look forward to the Gene Banks podcast. All right. <laughs> Keep that one in mind. Absolutely. Uh, so thanks, everyone, for uh, checking us out. Of course, you can find us um, at the uh, stepback at fansided.com. Uh, you can also search for Over and Back on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast. If you uh, like what we do, please leave a uh, rating and review. And, uh, yeah, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. So uh, until next time, uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.